So, if you know me, you know that uh, I, I get a little playful around kids. I, I enjoy uh, messing with them. Uh, I like to think I have a sophisticated game of teasing. Uh, but one of the questions I love to ask kids is, uh, are you one of the good kids or the bad kids? Uh, and I've never, 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 never had a kid say, I'm one of the bad ones. Inevitably, they're like, I'm the good one. Of course, I like to disagree and argue with this, but what I like to reveal is that there is a sense that in the heart of every child is this idea, this noble calling for being a life-changing, difference-making um, person. In fact, you can see it. When you're a little kid, there's this aspirational desire to become this person, um, a heroic person. And so, Kids often choose costumes in which they could emulate someone who is just making nothing but good choices. There's this beautiful heroic picture that's seated in the hearts of children that I love to sort of draw out. I love to sort of mine for. And so uh, the thing about every story that maybe we watch in a movie, read in a book, or hear being told to us is the nature of someone overcoming, someone making good choices. Ask them their career before they get into middle school and they realize that they want to be rich, ask them what they want to do for a living and it's always, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a princess. There's something beautiful about this noble calling that's seated in their heart. You know what I've never, never heard? I want to work in an office. <laughs> Words never spoken, right? And so there is this idea in our hearts. Now, before they grow up and life gives them a few beatings and there's a few disappointments and expectations and they become like us and get cynical and skeptical, before they get to that point, I think every kid lives with this idea of their future job aligning with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, a sense of making a contribution or, or bringing a kind of, of benefit to the world in which they live. There's something beautiful about that. And so it's this kind of idea uh, that I want to start talking about. And so we can start out believing that we can change, we can save, we can make a difference in the world. And this is the thing that I also think fuels our sense of joy. You've probably never connected mission with joy. But if you want to talk about idea of mission, you're talking about substance and meaning and purpose. How else do we find joy? Those things don't come without sacrifice. Mission doesn't come without effort. But joy, the joy of parenting, the joy of hard work, and none of it comes easy, but there's this satisfaction that also comes with it. Um, Timothy Keller had some great words that I want to share with you just to get kind of our, our, our mind going around this idea. And Tim Keller was describing this. He's an author. He's, he's a pastor. He's done a wonderful work. He's a great thinker. But what he describes is, he says, where there's no sense of mission left, there's no joy left either. Now, I don't know if you wake up thinking, boy, this is my mission today, or I'm on a mission. But think about it in terms of your sense of calling, not just what you do for a day job, a sense of what God has tasked for you to do. Listen to this. 
At the same time, our culture had a generation who thought they could make a difference. We also bought into a worldview that truth is relative. Now, he says, I was taught that there are certain things you do as a man or because you're a woman. There are things you do as a child, as a parent, a, a husband, or a wife. There are certain things you do because you have citizenship in arguably the greatest country on earth. And you do them just because you're supposed to do it. What it means is that there's some causes that are higher than my personal needs or comfort. There's family, there's morality, there's service to our country, there's obedience to God. But, here's what he goes on, we've largely bought into a belief that said there's nothing more important than personal individual fulfillment. And if there's no higher cause than my happiness, then there's nothing to deny my happiness for. And if there's no higher cause than my joy, there's nothing worth dying for or living for. There's not mission. I don't know how that strikes you, but that was profound. We've had a shift, especially in a very consumeristic, individualistic culture that says, if it doesn't benefit me, if it doesn't make me feel good, <laughs> it's not a priority. I'm just not gonna do it. If, if there's not enough ROI over my volunteerism, not gonna do it. Except, I think where we're most profoundly encouraged, where we find joy, is when we give of ourselves regardless of reward. Now, it might feel like work. So, what are we talking about? Um, at the beginning of this year, I'm suggesting to us that we resolve maybe to love better, to love more, um, to love strategically. And so, God saves us from being the center of our lives. And so, I want to talk about a growth plan. I've never heard anyone talk about, oh, this year my resolution is to love more. It's usually a self-help thing. Not bad. But what I want to encourage us to consider is the nature of God's love for the benefit of others, which by, by nature actually aligns us with God, what God desired, to not be the center of our own life. And so I want to talk about a resolution for us individually and collectively to love, love pragmatically, love sacrificially, love with intention so that our hearts can grow and God could use that more. And so we're in introducing the idea of a, a kind of church participation as a covenant where we resolve to grow in love. And last week we started out by simply talking about we are resolved to love each other. And we talked about what it means to be in a family of faith. And there's some things that just need to get done within a family system that aren't necessarily sexy or imaginative or, or really that exciting, but it just needs to get done like any family chore would do. Though I don't want to refer to this as chores, there's a way that I love my family even though I don't love what sometimes it requires. This week, I want to talk about the nature of resolving to love others. Specifically, the church is calling to love beyond our walls. I get really concerned with a church that gets over 10 years old because that nature of that becomes about self-preservation. 
So once you get things, you're trying to preserve the things. And you're trying to keep the, the sort of institution going. You're trying to keep the business afloat. And so I like to think of us as a movement of people that God is called to love well, love each other well, and love others well. Next week, we'll talk about what it means to love God. You see the dimensions of this. There's sort of an inward expression, there's an outward expression, and there's an upward expression, because the best thing that we can pursue is a three-dimensional reality of how we grow our Christian faith. And so... Um, Today, I want to consider how we love others. In other words, what I want us to consider to walk in is a covenant that says we as a people of God will live on mission. So let's talk about the nature of being on mission. That's a little bit of a buzzword today. You hear a lot of people talk about it. The word mission is a fancy, or, or what was largely called the missio dei, is a fancy Latin term for the mission of God. Missio is talking about sent. So the nature of being a Christian is to be a sent one. We live on mission. We live, our identity as a Christ follower is being sent into the world regardless of your day job, be it a school teacher or a stay-at-home parent. Whether you're a real estate broker or in healthcare, it does not matter. There is this sense that where I go, you are a missionary. We know that term. But that's not just a category of people, vocationally speaking. That is our identity as sent ones of God. So I hope this starts to revolutionize the way you consider who's in your sphere of influence by the nature of what office you share. That what business appointments you call on, or what clients you serve. This is all part of the people that God has brought into our life, and we are sent ones of God. So it's now what do we do when we understand that we're sent? Well, let me give you a picture, because Jesus was trying to make this picture very clear. In John chapter 17, listen to what Jesus is saying. This is an interesting picture. John 17 is all in red letters. It's Jesus having a little devotional time with his heavenly father, like we're getting to read his prayer diary. So this is kind of intimate. This is kind of, and so Jesus talking to his heavenly father about us. And you can almost seem like, you know, I don't know if you have those conversations like where you've maybe invested in people, like I've tried so hard, I've wanted to build into them and I've wanted this to happen. Maybe you're talking about your kids or maybe you're talking about your subordinates at work or whether you're talking about your students at school. Whatever the context is, you're sitting here trying to imagine, I've tried to do these things, I've tried to do these things, I want them to learn. I mean, we're at that stage where my son is a year and a half out of home and my daughter is six months from leaving home. And you start scratching your head going, did we give them what they need? Jesus is kind of experiencing that moment. Why? Because he knows inevitably for a healthy follower of Christ, they're going to have to live on mission, not live under the codependency of parenting, not live with the reality that Jesus will always be with them. We are sent ones. We are supposed to get out of the nest, but we're also supposed to have a community around us. So if we're going to talk about a spiritual growth plan, the only way a growth plan can sustain itself is if we've got each other. I could want to do all the self-help. I, I could do want to, all the noble things. But unless you're by my side, I can't sustain it. I hope you see it that way. 
That's the, that's the beautiful nature of being in community in a church. But Jesus says these words to his Father in heaven. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things. It's like parents talking about the kids. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, here's that, that missio idea, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. I have a dear friend, maybe the best way I can illustrate it, is he was working in mid-level companies and doing quite well. But he came to some, he's in his late, he's, he just turned 40, uh, <clears throat> And he, he kind of evaluated his life. And something he knew about himself was, it kills me to have to sit behind a desk in an office for eight hours a day. Secondly, I don't want to pursue having to, maybe for upward mobility, to be on the road and be away from my family. I don't want that kind of absenteeism. So he starts evaluating his life kind of as he's coming up on midlife and say, what is it that I want to give myself towards? And so he shifts gears and now he's doing uh, a personal advisement with wealth management. He, he's become a financial advisor. And here's what he said, I like the freedom it gives me to not have to sell out to a corporation or a company and have to respond to what they tell me. It gives me a sense um, that I can have some flexibility and discretionary time. But here's the thing that I love, because he has applied his faith and said, I don't see people as dollar signs. Many, many people don't actually have a strategy for how they can make their money work for when their hands stop working. And so I'm not looking to get rich off of people, though I am looking to make money. Really, I want to help. This is what it means to live a life on mission. And he is as much of a minister as I am if that's his goal. What's your mission field? How are you living on mission? Because this is the part of the Christian identity. How do you leverage that as a sent one? So let's go in. I want to talk about this. Now, if you've been around Mission Hills for any length of time, you've heard me bring up this idea of people of peace. We haven't revisited it lately, but I want to kind of briefly explain it and then largely illustrate it. Now, the briefly explain it, in scripture, you have these moments. It's, it's called the principle of first mention. So when there is the character of God or the attributes of God or the teachings of, you go, when was the first time it was taught? This is the first time it's taught. And in Luke uh, chapter 10, it's not up there. You, you can turn with me in your Bibles uh, if you want or open up a, a phone. But it talks about this idea of, of Jesus making these rounds through Galilee. And as Jesus was going through Galilee, he made sort of three tours. He did the first round through the Galilean countryside, and he basically invited these disciples to just watch and see. I do it, you observe. The second time through, he's saying, now you do it, and I'll watch. 
He wanted to give them on-the-job training because the third time through, what did he end up with? The Great Commission, go into all the world. So before he launches them into all the world, what he basically does is he gathers them in pairs and he sends them out. And he says, hey, friends, don't take anything with you for the journey. Don't take any extra money. Don't take any extra sandals. Don't pack an extra belt or a coat. In fact, just go out and you're going to go with like sheep among wolves. In other words, you're not going to always be well received. But look for the people who show you hospitality. Let me just read a couple of highlights uh, from, from, uh, from where he says, in the, and this is uh, Luke chapter 10. He says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. What does he ask? Ask him to send more workers. Who are the sent ones? You and me. So he says, ask for more work into the fields. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lamb among wolves. And he said, talks about don't take anything extra. Now, when you enter someone's home, first say to them, may God's peace be on this house. And he says, don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you, heal the sick, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. Okay, let's just unpack that a little bit and, and make sure we under, understand. This, this picture of people of peace is super critical to Mission Hill's strategy to reach Austin. It's not because I get better at preaching or we get more dynamic in worship and we just build a larger audience for Sunday worship, though there's room to grow. The idea is, is that every single one of us has identified who God has prepared in advance. Do you have a list of people that are in your life that have shown you kindness, hospitality, that are willing to do you favors, ask your advice, I'm suspicious God has prepared people and we're not doing what he says. What does he say when you find those people? Well, he talks about whatever they feed you, just take it. Now, what that was probably a reference to was Jews were being so strict about what they could and couldn't eat. So they're like, oh, I don't want to go into the world and break Torah. And he's like, don't worry about it. Get over the law, move past it. And in a second, when we look at another, I'll explain why he says that. But he's saying, Go to the house and let them care for you. Now, if they show interest and they take you in, be there. So they come back and they start talking about how all this amazing work. The point is this, is that he says, heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch those two things? So once you make the shift that you're supposed to live on mission, you are a sent one. Here's what we do. Heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God is near or at hand. What does that mean? Healing and proclamation are always going to be linked. So when you talk about the kingdom of God is near, what you're talking about, and this is what every Christ follower needs to be able to do, is to be able to articulate the difference God has made. Maybe another way I can ask that is, if you weren't a Christian, if you weren't believing in Christ, how would your life look different? Chances are there's been some notion of healing 
God has healed you financially. God has healed you physically. God has healed the memories of a very scarred childhood. God has healed some aspect in terms of restoring you and you're able to talk about the difference Christ is making. It does not mean arrival. It just simply means, I want to talk about the difference Christ has made in my life. This is what you carry as sent ones. And it's not about a seminary degree. It's not about a Bible college diploma. It's simply referencing the, the reality that Christ is present and active in your life. Can you do that? Have you exercised that at all? And so that's what he's doing. What is the difference uh, and the help that Christ makes in you? Now, we want to look real quick at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is a really interesting passage that illustrates the concept of people of peace. It is my desire that every one of us not only would keep a list, but that list would be the ones we would be regularly praying for. That would be the list that we regularly invite from. And then those are the people that you're sharing in your tribes so that we know each other's people of peace. So that when they do come to a Cinco de Bayou event or the pitch event, you know exactly who they are because they've been prayed there and God prepared them in advance. This is the strategy that we want to employ to grow the church to impact Austin. There are people without hope. There are people without community. There are people I think, frankly, that need what we have. Even though we find ourselves also in needy places, we have something beautiful worth giving away. In Acts chapter 10, there's this really unique thing that God interrupts culture by preparing two very unlikely bedfellows for each other. Let me show you what I mean by this. In Acts chapter 10, listen to what it says here. Cornelius, very significant. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Let me just pause. This is a long passage. I want to go through the whole chapter. You might want to follow along. It's not going to be up on the screen. But the thing that I want to draw out is you, who is in charge of... Who is the global um, military superpower at this time? Rome. Who is being oppressed? Pretty much everyone, but namely the Israelites. And so who is Cornelius? He's a commanding officer over a hundred soldiers. That's why he's a centurion. That's how that works. And so he happens to not be a Jew, but he also happens to be a God-fearing man, and he's got a great rapport and testimony around. And here's his, his encounter. Now, I wish I had quiet times like Cornelius, but it says this. On a one day at about three in the afternoon, three in the afternoon, just a side note, that is the tower of prayer. Every God-fearing person was going to stop whatever they're doing and pray at, the, at that hour during the day. So it's 9, 12, 3, 6. This is part of the, the, the sort of standing appointment with God as part of their own spiritual discipline. And, and he had a vision. And he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and he says, Cornelius, he stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel says, your prayers 
and your gifts to the poor have come as an offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house who's by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius sent two of his servants, a devout soldier and one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened. And so they go off. Now Joppa to Jerusalem was probably about... uh, well, if you were driving, which they weren't, it would be a 60-minute drive, but it's like a 40-mile walk. So you're not going to do it in a day. So imagine this isn't like just a snapshot of a 24-hour window. This is probably over the course of a whole week that this sort of act of God is being played out. Now, if you skip down, you have Peter's vision, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were about on their journey uh, and approaching the city, Peter went on the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance or he took a nap because there's nothing instant in the day. And so when you say, hey, I'm hungry, it's going to take a couple hours because either they're going to go start kneading bread and making dough or they're going to go slaughter something. So it's not like pop it in the microwave or put some cold cuts out on the table. So he falls asleep. And here's what's so amazing. God preparing two unlikely people to come together. He saw heaven opened up in something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then the voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men from Cornelius' sent came a-knocking and they called out and they said, hey Peter, you got some visitors. And so when Peter was like, what are you doing? He's like, hey, we were sent here by this guy. He's a good guy, but he sent for us to come. Really? So you've got a Roman soldier, centurion, and an early church leader. These two do not get along. These two do not run in the same circles. But what is God's Holy Spirit doing? He's preparing each of them. Now, you and I might not be having dreams of sheets coming down from heaven or dreams about who we're supposed to go knock on the door of. But I promise you, I promise you, God is preparing people in advance for you to proclaim the kind of difference Christ is making. I promise you. This is God's strategy. This is our strategy. And so listen to the contempt. Listen to the sort of arrogance. So he's humbling himself. So Peter at Cornelius' house. The next day, Peter started out on the walk with him and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. So now there's sort of a watch party. There's people like, oh, this is going to be good. And they're like, I'll walk 40 miles to see how this thing unfolds, right? Because you've got two significant people. There's this early church leader of which the Catholic church called the original Pope. And you've got this Roman centurion. Oh, let's see how this this is going to be good. And so the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. And he called everyone together, his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and he fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter's like, hey, get up, stand up. I'm a man just like you. I'm only a man. So there's this level of humility, right? 
whoa, this is one of the early church leaders. This guy was like, he was legit. He had given all himself to following Christ. Talking with him, Peter went inside. He found a large gathering of people and he said to them, listen to this. Well, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. And now you've got this great spread of food and you want to actually have a meal together? Heck no. You don't know how much explaining I got to do to my people. This is where God is interrupting culture. This is where God is interrupting social norms. This is where God is inviting people to be sent into the world, respond to his spirit, and do what only God can bring together. And so when I was sent, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius said, well, four days ago, I was in my house praying at the hour um, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining coats stood before me and he explained all the things that he said. And he said, send to get you. So here I am. And so Peter says, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. There's, I would encourage you, you can read the rest of the passage, but it's a powerful story of simply this principle. The person of peace is that person which God has prepared in advance for us. See, when we talk about being in covenant together, what we're talking about is how we partner together and with God. I don't like to use the term, uh, the language of membership because membership implies that there's insiders and there's outsiders. Membership sort of has its benefits, right? At least that's what we're told, as if it's a country club. Like I'm allowed, like I walk into Costco and I'm allowed in because I show them my card. That's not how the church is supposed to work. And the idea that, well, if I give here and if I've occupied the pew for a longer round, I have seniority. But this is often what membership has produced. But what I'm trying to do is outline our covenant that produces a spiritual growth plan for each of us to grow in love. That's the goal. And so um, that contributes to my own spiritual development, but our own spiritual growth. And so let me just simply define what I'm looking for. I believe the mission of the church is to make disciples. That's why we're here. We're not here just to make converts. We're here to make disciples. So how do I define a disciple? I think three basic things. Number one, a disciple is able to articulate their faith. Number two, a disciple has a way to practice or experiment with what they believe is true about who God is, right? If we believe something, we should practice it. We should do it. And thirdly, the disciple knows how to share it with those closest. Think about this. Whatever your job is, they send you to a foreign country. You're overseas. What do you have to do if you go overseas to work with the local workforce? You gotta figure out a way to speak the language. You have to figure out a way to communicate. Then you have to figure a way to work together, practice, to collaborate. And, and thirdly, you have to figure out a way to share your gifts. It's the same thing when we come to faith in Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple of God. 
So when we become disciples, we are learning to talk about the difference Christ has made. We're learning to talk about faith in non-threatening ways. That's why I spent so much time on the language of rhythms. Because I felt like we needed fresh language that wasn't spiritually threatening to talk about evangelism. No, we just like to talk about hospitality or to talk about stewardship. No, we just talk about generosity. No, we talk about worship. Oh, we talk about gratitude. Repentance. No, we talk about renewal. They're just sort of disarming ways that we can express what I think is a living faith. But we need to be able to practice those things in tangible ways. And so this is sort of the strategy. Now, what I'm looking for is up to us to consider making covenant vows. So last week I talked about the covenant that we would make as to, to be in community. And part of that being in community is that we carry the responsibilities and the needs of the community and we choose to be an apprentice within the community. So the next time we have a baby dedication and I say, will all of the covenant participants stand with me and say, will you help instill the way of Christ in this child? You're like, yeah, I'm going to help with children's ministry. I'm going to help with youth ministry. I'm going to speak into their life. I'm going to come alongside them as marriage. That's our responsibility. That's, that's what we're saying yes to. This week, I want to consider a vow that we agree together to live on mission. It's resolving to love others. And the two rhythms that we think about mostly is the rhythm of hospitality. So I want everyone to have a list of people of peace. I want everyone to think about who are the people that God has prepared for me? Who are the people that I seem to have unusual favor, inexplicable favor with, but maybe I'm supposed to do something with my influence over them. Why are they so interested or nice to me? Why are they patient with me? Uh, maybe it's not you, maybe it's God. We have a strategy that is our church's lab, our first weekend strategy. And the idea was, number one, we would grow our church by making faith and community accessible. Not everyone's willing to take a step into worship or your living room. But what we want to do is create venues in which they could experience what we have. But secondly, I wanted to have a laboratory that were like, hey, if we believe that God is an actual generous God or a compassionate God or a hospitable God, we should do that too. So when we talk about hospitality, what we're talking about very specifically is I want you to have a list of maybe five people that you are constantly interceding for, standing in the gap, praying for, and going, I want to see God take a next step. And the thing that you're looking for are simply opportunities to proclaim the difference Christ is making, how he is healing you. The second rhythm that goes with this vow to live on mission is our rhythm of compassion. You know, it's really interesting when you think about compassion not as someone giving with abundance to someone who has very little, but simply recognizing the reality that we're all so stinking needy and flawed. So when I'm giving to someone else, it's recognizing I'm no different. Their needs are just different than my needs. Now we're giving from a place of humility, not pride. Now we're giving from a place of an even playing field. And there just seemed to be something more formative about that. And so these are the kinds of ways that I want to talk. That's why as we shift gears with our tribes, you know, we were calling it Church's Tribe Weekend, and now we're calling it Church's Lab. What's the difference? We're meeting corporately. 
but we absolutely need small group environments that meet during the week so that you can be able to talk about the difference Christ is making. And I've given outlines to our tribe leaders with the idea that we would spend this whole year and you getting fluent in tribe speak, or excuse me, in rhythm speak. I want us to be able to talk about the rhythms in conversational ways. It's sort of just kind of unifying our language around that and being able to articulate that, most notably to those closest and your kids. Because you're the spiritual leader even more than Pastor Dave. So this is sort of our invitation. And on February 9th, we're going to have what I call I Do Sunday. It's Covenant Sunday. And oh, by the way, I want this to be a yearly renewable vows. I've had the privilege a couple times of maybe a couple has been married for 10 years and they want to renew their vows. Maybe they came through a hard stretch. Maybe they, they were holding on by a thread. But I, I got a chance to sit down and do a, a kind of a, a marriage renewal. And they re-exchanged their vows. It's a beautiful thing. Well, what if our faith each year was something that we stood before each other and before God and say, I'm all in. And this is how I'm going to serve. This is how I'm going to give. This is what I can do. And, and every year we got to have this active and growing faith to renew our vows one to another. So that's the hope. The hope isn't just sign on a line and you become a member and stay committed until you move or whatever. It's no, let's just grow in covenant. And maybe this helps expand our commitment to grow in love the way God loves that's the plan. That's the prayer. That's the dream. Making disciples. We pray with me? Our Father in heaven, um, it is a daunting task to follow you. And um, we, I am woefully inadequate, and yet I find life in the community of saints that have walked with you longer and are asking questions like a newborn. That makes me feel alive. And so, Lord, we pray that as we seek satisfaction in you, we seek the joy of the Lord, we would find it in a God-given, life-changing, world-difference-making sense of mission. So whatever our day job, will you speak to us about our sentness? Will you speak to us about our influence? Will you reveal to us the difference that you're making so that we can be able to articulate that in meaningful ways? Will you grow this church both in depth and breadth? Will you use <laughs> sort of this ragtag small group of people who just have a humility and a hunger to be shaped into your image? Lord, I pray that we could agree together to live on mission and to be able to have words to talk about the difference you're making and a legacy would be formed because we're becoming competent to pass it to those closest. Lord, we trust you with this, but we need you for this and we ask, invite your Holy Spirit to do for us what we can't do alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.